in the nursing profession, we have a history of being oppressed by other groups of professionals. You know, we were an oppressed group in some ways. I think some people have argued that. But we also have a history. We have a within-group problem of this type of hierarchical oppression as well. Recently, uh, some people that I respect wrote this paper about how PhD-trained nurses need to steward the profession. I understand what they're saying, but implicit in that it needs to be PhDs that lead the profession, that steward the profession in the right direction, implies that only this one subgroup of nurses knows what the right direction is, first of all. And second of all, that they <laughs> sit atop the profession, which, you know, uh, this is not to say that they're not leaders. It's to say that the idea that they should be hierarchicalized in the leadership as if we are a totem pole and the step below the PhD is the DNP on that totem pole. We're committing the same fallacy as physicians who say, NPs, you guys are mid-level providers. Like there's a ladder of quality care provision based on professional degree status. We have this problem of perpetuating the same ridiculous oppressive values within our profession. Being a PhD prepared nurse doesn't make you the arbiter of what needs to occur. Welcome to Clinical Appraisal, a podcast about nursing science with a focus on methodology. I'm your host, Ian Lane. All opinions shared are my own, and none of this information constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. If you would like to make a donation in support of my efforts to continue this show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. If you would like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. I've been thinking a little bit about my previous upload, and I wanted to add some qualifiers to this conversation. Um, I think the sort of takeaway from the previous episode on an argument for the DNP MSCI is that people often think in binaries, and where binaries are appropriate, that's a totally understandable thing to do. But oftentimes things are not binaries. They're not, a, they're not so simple as to be categorized in these dichotomous ways. You know, ones are zeros, trues are false. It's just not that, that straightforward. And I wanted to take a moment to discuss one additional way in which this false dichotomization is actually problematic. And, you know... It's funny, I talk to people now and they say things like, um, they'll tell me the heuristic. And, you know, as I've talked about on the podcast before, there's this famous quote, all models are wrong, but some are useful. I think it was a physicist who said this. Um, heuristics are like models. They're wrong, but sometimes they're useful. And so there's this incorrect heuristic that knowledge translation and knowledge generation in nursing are different. And they can be viewed as having different modes, you could say that they're, uh, you could potentially purport that they're bimodal, um, but you can't purport that they're binary. You can use a binary model as a heuristic in your mind, but that mental category doesn't map onto the actual world around you. And that's kind of the point of what I was trying to get at in my previous upload. But what I wanted to say, though, today is to kind of expand on that in one direction, which is to say, there's one additional way in which this false dichotomy can be further kind of blown apart and show that this heuristic is inaccurate. And I would say, let's look at the... So I think what I did last time is I looked a little bit closer at the sort of clinical expert interested in research bucket, as if it is a bucket, that sort of uh, mode of being. And this time I'd like to take a moment to look at the other so-called bucket, the category 
such as it is, of researcher, like traditional researcher. And the framework for this before was like, you know, DNP versus PhD or whatever, which is also a silly way to frame that because there's no verses per se. And it, you know, for whatever it's worth, there's been a like 20 year long debate about, and maybe it's been longer than that now, 30 year long debate about like MD versus DO versus NB versus PA. And it's all nonsense. Nobody actually cares about that stuff in the real world. They care about it online. They get into little fights online and like online forums, which don't necessarily reflect reality. And some people get upset about those things in real life, but mostly it's not a thing and people just do their jobs and they collaborate pretty well. And they just care about doing what they do well, generally speaking. Um, and so again, the same framework here, like DNP versus PhD is a silly way to think about it. Um, and I think most people would agree with that on either side of the so-called debate. And there really is no debate. Most people hold what I perceive to be an imprecise view, this sort of dichotomous view. Not all of them. A lot of people, I would say, I'm going to guess 10% of the field hold a, a different view from the sort of, maybe it's up to 15. I'm. This is just a guess. That sort of diverge from the mainstream consensus opinion. But as we all know, the mainstream consensus opinion, although it has value and validity, it is not correct by virtue of its being a consensus. And there are many things that are essentially taken as fact by the consensus that is then overturned after new evidence emerges. I mean, that's essentially what Cunian paradigm shifts are all about. It's also what falsification is about. If you're more of a Popperian like myself, you can hold a view that then you find out through some experiment, for example, happens to be wrong, and then you change your mind. I mean, that's what good scientists do. And it doesn't matter so much if your title is MS or PhD or DNP or whoever, who cares? The point is that new, compelling, high-quality evidence ought to be able to change your perspective on something. Um, So that's sort of tangential, but getting back to the point, if we were to look at this bucket, uh, such as it is, of like traditional PhD researcher, right? Or, and let's take the PhD portion out of it, just traditional researcher. That is not a, that's not a univariate kind of a, mode either in and of itself, right? Like, you know, I know I talked a little bit about the idea that this might be bimodally distributed, but that's only if you categorize two groups. It only, it's only true if you look at DNPs and PhDs, but that's not the way the research bin actually works either. The research bin is multimodal. What type of research are you talking about? There are a plethora of different types of researchers and all of them are valid in their own ways. Research as a, it's sort of misconstrued in nursing as a singular bucket. And again, I would argue that we have a kind of a bad habit and a long history of thinking in these classical binary ways, um, as if these things are independent of one another, and they're not. So the way I'm thinking about this is imagine your research is methodological. Well, what does it mean for your research to be methodological? It means you're improving or adapting, let's say, measures that are relevant for a particular area of study. You might be amending statistical methods or adapting statistical methods for a particular use. You might be creating entirely novel methodological approaches. Um, You might be developing or amending methodological approaches to a particular type of question or a particular type of study. Or, you know, there are methodologists who build entirely new designs for research. And that type of inquiry is unique to methodologists and statisticians. That is not something that a traditional researcher in you know, I don't know, like a traditional nurse scientist, whatever that means, because people do so many different interesting things, it's hard to actually use that as an umbrella term with any real meaning, any substance. 
um, a so-called traditional nurse researcher might never do a study like that. Now, some do. In fact, there are some really, really good ones. And, you know, one example is a woman named Janet Hinkle, who I believe was the, maybe still is the editor-in-chief at the Journal of Nursing Measurement, who has been doing some psychometric work for a long time. Carol Bova had been doing a lot of psychometric work and improving and adapting measures. And um, there are a host of really high-quality nurse scientists out there doing methodological work, but it's a minority. There's not a very large number of them, and there's only one journal for nursing measurement. The point there being that methodology in and of itself as a mode of inquiry is really its own mode. And um, you might look at something different. You might look at another mode and say that this is the basic science mode. This is the mode that the Xiaomei Kongs and the Mallory Perrys and the uh, Angela Starkweathers and the Susan Dorsey, all of these people are doing really fundamental work in basic science. There might be a big data mode or an informatics mode where people like Dr. Kolek, who Teresa Kolek, who I interviewed recently, who are doing things like natural language processing, NLP, um, so really pretty high-level data science-related informatics inquiry, and that might be its own mode. You might be doing epidemiologic work, so you might be doing determinants and distributions based on population-level data, and that mode of research is its own mode. Interestingly, statisticians and biostatisticians can do that type of research, so-called traditional researchers with PhDs can do that research, of course, in their area of study. But it's also quite possible that, you know, an, a master's of science student who graduates with a degree in epidemiology can do that research, or public health, or nursing, or medicine. Um, you know, you can get a, an MS in biomedicine and do that type of research. You can get an MSCI or an MSCR and do that kind of research. Uh, a lot of really good epidemiologic studies are piloted by MPH holders. And we wouldn't consider their epidemiologic investigations any less valid, especially if they're high quality, simply by the function of their not having a PhD. That just doesn't compute. Um, of course, you can get a PhD in public health or statistics or epidemiology, and but these people often work together and, you know, a master's level person in epidemiology can work independently and be a senior investigator in a project. And so there's nothing stopping them from being the sole principal investigator on an epidemiologic study. There are the sort of longitudinal survey designs that are done uh, quite well by uh, an innumerable number of different types of professionals. Um, perhaps you want to do a clinical trial and you're an MD. That's quite often done in partnership with a host of other researchers, but it needn't be a host of PhDs. I mean, and in fact, you know, I mentioned DNPs. <laughs> People have said to me, uh, you know, there are no DNP researchers. That's not true. One of the articles I reviewed on the podcast was actually done entirely by two DNP holders um, from Florida. One of them, their last name is McLaughlin. And they do some pretty decent work in the nursing care of neurointensive care patients, so in the neuro ICU, and have been relatively prolific. This pair of authors. I believe they're both DNPs, and they both do some pretty good research, and it's original research. Another bin, there may be more than, this is not a, an exhaustive list, but this is just the list that comes to mind. Another bin might be meta-research. So, you know, you have people like John Ioannidis and uh, Vinay Prasad, and, you know, maybe... 10 or 11 other people across the country who are doing, across the U.S., I should say, who are doing what is known as meta-research. Essentially, meta-research is just research on research. So, you know, the most common example of this is a systematic or scoping review and meta-analysis of effect sizes or meta-regression type of analysis. And that's just one type. Uh, bibliometric analyses might be another type. Um, so there's a whole host of different ways to meta-analyze 
scientific research. You can analyze authors and their publications. One really interesting thing that John Ioannidis did from Stanford this past year was analyze the publications on COVID from Twitter commenters versus from other scientists who did not have Twitter that published in the space of infectious disease and COVID-19. And uh, interestingly, in my opinion, showed that a lot of the Twitter commenters that ended up having a lot of social clout did not have very many high-impact citations published on COVID themselves. Whatever you think about that, notwithstanding, that I just think is interesting from a meta-research perspective as a kind of methodology. So, you know, you might possibly lump meta-research into methodological work, but, you know, you can do this without creating or developing new methods per se, um, just using traditional let's say, bibliometric methods, for example, or different types of cluster analyses. Oh, and actually, how could I forget? There's one additional bucket which I think of as well, which is qualitative research. Um, So qualitative or mixed methods research might be of particular interest to nurses. And what's fascinating about this as its own bucket here is because when people use, especially in nursing, the sort of overarching umbrella term of quote-unquote researcher in this dichotomous way, they typically mean somebody who's prepared to do any type of study or investigation. And I don't know the last time that I worked with a dedicated qualitative researcher that would be comfortable writing a grant for a highly quantitative project, at least not without collaborating with somebody else. But so let me pose this question to you. What if the somebody else that you are working with, let's say that you're proposing a mixed method study and you're the qualitative researcher and you need a quantitatively focused researcher on your team and you both work together, who is to say that the person that's best suited for that isn't a DNP who's interested in informatics and has a good quantitative record and has been, let's say, PI on their own quantitative work, that person might be better suited to participate in the quantitative elements of your study than you are. And what I've noticed is that qualitative researchers, because qualitative research is so difficult and so complex, and they are so expert at their qualitative methodologies. It's often something, at least this has been my experience, with really highly skilled qualitative researchers will defer to other people like statisticians or methodologists or other researchers with a heavy quantitative focus for the quantitative things without taking it personally or thinking that it's some kind of uh, a negative or that it says something negative about them. Because it doesn't. It just speaks highly of their skills in their area, which is qualitative analysis and inquiry. So if you look at this so-called overarching bucket of research, as in research versus clinical experts who are interested in research, whatever the heck this sort of weird false dichotomy is that we've set up as fact, um, based on this heuristic of knowledge translation versus knowledge generation, when you look at this bucket that is so-called traditional research... It is not a a unidimensional factor. It is a multimodal set that includes things like qualitative analysis. It includes methodological inquiry and analysis. It includes meta-research and analysis. It includes, includes survey. It includes experimental design and clinical research. And all of the different people that fit into those various modes may be somewhat different. For example, the vast majority of people doing basic biomedical science are, you know, PhDs in laboratory-based fields. And most of them are not nurses, although there are some fabulous basic scientists in nursing. I think for, you know, one person that comes to mind is Dr. Xiaomei Kong at the University of Connecticut School of Nursing. She is trained very explicitly in nursing science, but does multi-omics research and laboratory-based pain science research and is doing right now some really, really interesting work in the microbiome and its relationship to neonatal pain and things like this. And it's definitely in that basic science realm. But part of what I'm getting at here is, can you imagine taking just any 
uh, randomly chosen, a randomly selected nurse researcher and saying, okay, um, I'm going to ghostwrite this grant for you. This is just a thought experiment. Ghostwrite this hypothetical grant for you. And it is a laboratory-based project. And you're going to do, you know, whatever, X, Y, Z. You're going to look at some laboratory factor or set of factors in your multivariable analysis. And you're going to be on your own because you're a, quote, researcher. How would that go? They would probably freak out. What are the odds that the person you selected, and I did say randomly selected, so there is a probability, uh, some small probability that you might pick somebody who's perfectly well suited for that. But what's the likelihood that you choose randomly from the entirety of the set of nurse scientists, let's say in the United States, that the one you choose happens to be somebody who is very fluent at laboratory-based inquiry? I would say, given the number of people actually working in that space, I think it would be very small. Let's say as well that you want to look at um, methodological work. Well, most people doing methodological work are actually not even in the field. They're all statisticians and uh, psychologists who worked in you know methodological research in, psych- in the behavioral statistic realm. Again, when you look at the multiplicity of modes that sits within this sort of set of quote-unquote researchers, like types of researchers, it doesn't really make sense to frame this as a like DNP versus PhD thing because take one of those modes from that multimodal set. Take informatics. There's 15 years of literature in the nursing research showing that DNP graduates ought to get additional training in informatics. And there's good reason for this. There are various rationales for this that are well thought out and in the literature. There are a, a set of three or four really good papers that I pulled out for one of the recent synthesis reviews that I did. And uh, they talk a lot about how the analytic skills, the quantitative analytic skills involved in informatics for DNPs is crucial And this is just one example. Um, And so in that sense already, you can see that there is an overlapping distribution, an overlapping relationship of distributions from the so-called DNP category, as it is, um, to the sort of uh, research category. So this is yet another way in which this sort of false dichotomy of knowledge generation versus knowledge translation does not fit. And in this case, actually, it should be you know, more broadly categorized as uh, practice-based expertise versus research-based knowledge generation expertise. Why am I so passionate about this? I'm so passionate about this because of the 20% of us on the DNP side who are interested in doing these things that don't necessarily require the more traditional approach. And, uh, you know, 20% is an estimate based on one project, one study. But even if we decrease that estimate. That point estimate is probably inflated, and it it would probably have some um, regression downward. I would say, you know, even if we take maybe 8%, that's still a large number of people who'd be well-suited for this type of, um, let me rephrase, would be well-suited to be allowed. I don't even like that. Because allowed implies that you have to ask permission. And if you're a doctorally prepared person, the see, this is what's interesting to me. And I'm going to point this out as well, because in the nursing profession, we have a history of being oppressed by other groups of professionals. You know, we were an oppressed group in some ways. I think some people have argued that. But we also have a history. We have a within group problem of this type of hierarchical oppression as well. Recently, uh, some people that I respect wrote this paper about how PhD-trained nurses need to steward the profession. I understand what they're saying, but implicit in that it needs to be PhDs that lead the profession, that steward the profession in the right direction, implies that only this one subgroup of nurses knows what the right direction is, first of all. And second of all, that they (laughs) sit atop the profession, which, you know, uh, this is not to say that they're not leaders. It's to say that the idea that they should be hierarchicalized in the leadership as if we are a totem pole and the step below the PhD is the DNP on that totem pole. 
we're committing the same fallacy as physicians who say NPs, you guys are mid-level providers. Like there's a ladder of quality care provision based on professional degree status, which implies that somebody like the RN provides less high quality patient care than NP and the PA, which provides less quality care than the MD and the DO. All of that is nonsense. And we have this problem of perpetuating the same ridiculous, oppressive values within our profession. And so there is this sense in which I will say things like, oh, asking permission, we should be allowed to whatever. The way that we talk about the DNP and the PhD, however, like, you know, they have those stupid DNP versus PhD columns. I had a interviewed Dr. Martha Dawson from UAB, who talked a lot about um, how how frustrated she gets, and I think understandably so, with this idea that you have columns of DNP versus PhD. And I agree with her tremendously about how we need, her word I think was cross-pollination, and I think it's a good one. Um, But the way that that's framed is that they are on equal footing, the DNP and the PhD, in terms of whatever hierarchical leadership ladder type of situation they think we have going on in nursing, the way it's framed is that they are equal, but distinct. Um, I would say, I, I think that the way it is in practice, it's looked at as being not equal. And there is a movement to make it even more unequal so that PhDs are cast in a higher light, even though they're just people and we are both doctorally prepared. Um, hypothetically, they're on the same par. They're both doctorally prepared in their field with slightly different focus. And that's the other element of this is like equal but distinct. We talked about the equal part, but what about the distinct part? Well, that's what I've been getting at this whole time. It's like, yes, distinct doesn't mean dichotomous. Distinct means different at the means and the extremes. Now, if you take a multimodal set approach, like we did in this conversation here, you'd have to do an analysis of variance across multiple groups. And that is a very interesting consideration. But, but if you boil these, this multi-set group into one sort of uh, category of quote-unquote researcher, the clinical group and the research group, there is a lot of overlap. It's bimodally distributed, or at least it's multimodally distributed in some sense. And it's not uh, a binary classification um, dichotomized into, you know, this, these two groups, ones and zeros. This is not how this works. Part of my feeling compelled to record this is precisely because, you know, I do these, I have at now probably six hours worth on this podcast about this question of where do we draw these lines? Where is the distinction? Is it really dichotomous, et cetera, et cetera. And in that six hours, I think I've talked about roughly every possible angle of, of this question that I can think of. And um, and I still get this heuristic thrown around, uh, you know, of course, from people who've not listened. And, and even if you've listened and don't agree, at least you've taken the time to understand my arguments, hypothetically. But uh, But a lot of people who have not spent six or seven hours thinking about this problem, will they'll kind of launch this... Uh, heuristic my way of like, no, 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 no. This degrees sets you up for knowledge translation as if knowledge translation and knowledge generation are so different and have nothing to do with each other, (laughs) which even that in and of itself, like take away the DNP, take away the PhD components of it, take away the nursing component of it. Just look at those two constructs themselves, knowledge generation, knowledge translation. You could do an entire podcast for multiple hours on how those things are not distinct dichotomous categories. This is not a binary. Now, there are some things that are binary categories, but knowledge translation and knowledge generation is not one of them. And the sort of uh, interest in and readiness to be trained in research between DNPs and PhDs, also not binary. Now, I know I get this a lot and I have to repeat myself because people don't necessarily have the time or the inclination to go back and listen to the other six hours of conversation that I've had on this particular topic. But my claim is not that DNPs as they are, are prepared 
to do research the way that a PhD is prepared to do research. That's not the claim. So when people put that out there as my position, they are essentially setting up a straw man. What I am saying is that often the implication is you couldn't become prepared to do this and wouldn't be good at it once you were. And that's just foolish and ridiculous. If you are intelligent and capable enough to be doctorally prepared, you are competent and capable enough to do a postdoc for two years and learn how to do a method that you're going to employ in a particular study design. That's just that simple. Um, If you are competent enough to take on a doctoral training program and become a DNP prepared nurse, then you are absolutely intelligent and competent enough to be able to do an MPH and focus on epidemiologic methods in your MPH and do research from there. Or get good mentorship from somebody who does work you're interested in, whether they're DNP, MD, MPH, PhD, who cares? Find that person, get your mentorship, and then just do your work. And One final thing to say on the note of asking permission and getting permission and being allowed to do whatever you're talking about doing, whatever you want to do, because you're DNP prepared. I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like if the PhD in biomedical science came before the MD, which it did not. It kind of, the PhD in biomedical sciences emerged secondary to the MD, and it's a relatively recent phenomenon. But even then, I don't think it would be the same as it is here. I don't think people would just... I think people just get to the point where they just do what they do and then they stop trying to get validation. And just like a lot of the people who give you advice are not themselves super productive researchers, take it in stride and appreciate that they're giving you some wisdom and there might be some nuggets there that you can use. But ultimately, if you do great work, people will stop asking you. Why are you doing this? You're doing the wrong thing. Those people might give you their opinion, but ultimately, if you continue to do great work and you produce high-level work, then you'll just be left alone to do your work. So, stop asking for permission. Learn what needs to be learned because what you're passionate about, especially if it's you know, I'm feeling a little bit rambly today and I apologize, but but I think this is important. There are traditional categories for a reason, and most things can be sort of binned in these kind of traditional categories most of the time. But people are so complex that our categories will always fail for some people. It is an inevitability. It will fail for some people. Some people will fall outside the bounds of those categories, and they may need to develop a different category. And this is because it might be, in, you know, in terms of research, for example, that this so-called new category that you're building, in as much as it's a category at all, it might be that your interests are so unique that they don't fit anywhere else, but they're still worth pursuing. At this point in the game, after several hundreds of years worth of improving scientific inquiry and methodology and research design and the types of things like what's the likelihood that every little nuanced niche idea is going to you know suddenly emerge and be a useful category very low but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen and it could very well be that your niche category is an important category and if it's so important that you feel so compelled to do it stop asking permission and just do it and do good work. You know, after the 1960s, we had this big push to take on this Cunian paradigm shift kind of uh, approach to, to nursing. And when the paradigm shifts, the idea is that there's an overhaul of what used to be in favor of something different. And We recently experienced this with the new NINR initiatives and innovative questions with the new directorship. And, uh, and there are some people who are pushing back against that, but that notwithstanding the idea that nursing sort of predicates some of its scientific endeavors on paradigm shifts, like big paradigm shifts. (laughs) One of the things that I find funny is that people who are very stringently in the camp of you know, nobody outside the nursing PhD should be doing nursing science. 
And there are many of those people that I have talked to. But what's funny to me is that there seems to be a discrepancy and a contradiction in their holding that view while also believing this idea of paradigm shifts. Because what if the paradigm shift that I'm talking about is that DNPs do research of their own derivative as well? That could be a paradigm shift that is impending. And it could be that it is impending in such a way that you will have no choice but to get on board. Now, I should say, I actually don't view things in that direction. I don't think that that's actually necessarily something that we need to conceptualize our science by. In fact, I'm much more of a falsificationist. I'm much more of a popperian in my view of philosophy of science. But that's just one way in which I feel like there's a contradiction in belief from these people who, you know, will argue that, well, the reason that I'm more prepared is because I have a PhD and I got to learn philosophy of science. Well, if you remember your philosophy of science, there's a big push in nursing philosophy of science to take on this Cunian paradigm shift. And if that's what you want to view your scientific practice through the lens of, then who's to say that the shift that's coming is not a shift that you like? Because it could very well be the case that I'll give you a very concrete example. In the journal Nursing Research in December, there is an article, the very first article um, in it is an editorial. They argued against the recent NINR paradigm shift for nursing science, really. And I think they're perfectly within their rights to propose the questions that they asked of the community. And without getting into the, the meat of that article, the point I'm making is there are people who are going to not like the paradigm shifts that occur. But if the idea of nursing philosophy of science is that you have to get on board because this is what a paradigm shift looks like for the field and it's coming, well then what if this also ends up being a paradigm shift that comes that you don't like? Being a PhD prepared nurse doesn't make you the arbiter of what needs to occur. Because there is a kind of consensus approach built into that model, that philosophy of science. As I think about this, there are two additional pieces I would like to conclude on. And, you know, firstly, to take the simpler of the two, most research is quite poor. And I don't, I don't think that it's a function of people's lack of interest or care or attention per se. I just think that sometimes there's a lack of methodological understanding amongst researchers. And of course, that's why the goal is to incorporate consultant statisticians or epidemiologists and methodologists to help with this problem, because research design and analysis is its own specialization for a reason. But, you know, I work with statisticians all day, uh, th throughout the week during my day job outside of school. And, you know, people are people. These statisticians are humans. And while most statisticians are incredibly precise and logical and attentive to detail and uh, rule conscious and conscientious individuals, which makes them very well suited for this, there are some that, you know, they're having a bad week and they're having a hard day and they don't care as much about your content area. And, you know, they'll do the analysis and they'll send you the stuff, but they'll leave you to be the person to interpret those data. Or, you know, maybe they forget about what notes they took during the meeting uh, that you had where you actually discussed precisely what you needed to do with your variables. And, you know, it's it's hard to know exactly where some of those systems break down, but occasionally they do. But one thing that happens, though, is that, you know, journals have had to bring on statistical reviewers to review manuscripts because ad hoc reviewer researchers don't typically know enough about methods to be able to do that. And most of them will freely admit this. And most researchers will submit things that often have statistical and methodological errors. And the errors are often fatal flaws for those papers. But what's happened over the years is most of those papers which have fatal flaws in them have been published, that have gone out there in the world. And 
ignoring the fact that most research is wrong in that even when it's done correctly, most point estimates are incorrect. As in, they would not hold up with future work and there really is no actual true effect there. The second thing that I would like to say is that I would like to give some credit to PhD-prepared nurse researchers as well, because I've spent so much time sort of focused on the problem of this disparity between what the DNP-prepared scholar is quote-unquote allowed to do versus the PhD-prepared scholar in nursing. But it's important to recognize that some of these logical inconsistencies flow in both directions. So the thing that comes to mind for me is we've talked about this false dichotomy of knowledge generation versus knowledge translation in relationship to the DNP-prepared scholar, in that knowledge translation is their domain and that knowledge generation is outside their purview. But implicit in this is that knowledge translation is outside the purview of the nurse scientist with PhD preparation. And this is equally absurd. Think about what this means. The implication is that there ought not be crossover, which further perpetuates this problem of the research to clinical practice gap that is currently at something like seven to 15 years, call it a decade. There is a decade long gap between when knowledge is generated and when it's translated. And the idea for the DNP, according to the AACN 2006 and some of the discussions that led to that document, is that the DNP would translate nursing knowledge. Well, if you think that translation is simply application of findings, you are misguided because what you've done is you've set up yet another gap between these two domains because if these are discrete categories with no overlap then how do they communicate so here's here's what the claim is right the claim is well the phd prepared nurse your colleague the nurse scientist will generate some new finding and you as a dnp prepared nurse with your practice expertise in your particular clinical domain will accept those findings as true and apply them to your practice Ignoring the fact that that model is unbelievably wrong in practice in that things do not work out that way, let's just take two of those. First, you are assuming that the work done by that PhD-prepared nurse scientist is good in and of itself enough to apply. And that's almost never the case. It also assumes that the individual on the other end the sort of effector site end with the DNP, has no say over the quality and the interpretation of those data. And, secondly to this, that there's no reason to question its applicability to that clinical setting, because hypothetically, with this model, this discrete dichotomous model, the PhD-prepared nurse is separable from the clinical context so now you want to apply something that has not been applied to the clinical context to the clinical context and assume that no new questions will emerge from that application process, ignoring the fact that there's nobody then to answer it if the DNP-prepared scholar isn't equipped with the tools to help generate new answers to those practice-based questions. <laughs> the idea that it's going to fit like a puzzle piece that doesn't then have to be remolded to fit the new clinical context based on the expertise of the person in that practice-based context is frankly crazy to me. But getting back to my original point here, to give credit where credit is due to PhD-prepared nurse scientists, if you think that a PhD-prepared nurse worth their salt could not then do knowledge translation, you're not paying attention to two things. One, nurse scientists are still clinical researchers. Now, I do think that there is a big difference between being a clinical investigator at the basic science level and being a practice-based implementation scientist who is literally working at the bedside doing clinical investigation. I think there's a, there's a difference in not only in style, in 
methodology. Um, there's a difference. There's a difference kind of purely in this sort of efficacy versus effectiveness versus implementation type of space that we've talked about on the podcast before. But the other thing you're not paying attention to is how well equipped the nurse scientist is at synthesizing and applying research. And they often are themselves APRNs or RNs in a particular clinical domain. So, you know, one of the things that I I talk a little bit about is this idealized thought process that people have, where they talk about these worlds as if they're separate, practice versus research. But ignoring the fact that there is a place for research in practice, in applied settings for that DNP-prepared scholar, which I talk about a lot, to pretend that it is the case, first of all, to pretend that nurse scientists with PhD preparation are generally doing research is to ignore the empirical data. Most of them get out and become educators or theorists. Some of them get out and do fabulous research. I have a slate of them prepared to come on the podcast to talk about their amazing research. I have a really interesting nurse scientist I would love to speak to who I've reached out to named Dr. Cooley, who has been a nurse scientist in the hospital system and is now a university faculty member doing really, really good health services and systems-based research in academia and has had both sets of perspectives. And she has PhD training and is a wealth of knowledge, and I'm very excited to speak with her. And she's a good example of somebody who is doing really good, really high-quality research and is serious about her investigations. And the idea that she, because she's also worked in the practice setting and she is, to my knowledge, um, a practicing nurse, she understands what happens at the bedside in her area of expertise. And it would be silly to pretend that that's not the case. But it is equally silly to pretend that the vast majority of nurse PhDs graduate and do high-level research. How many PhD-prepared nurses are writing for R awards? How many nurse scientists are actually pursuing grants every cycle? Why is it the case that 60% of the funding from the NINR is going to non-nurse researchers in schools of nursing? It's because... We don't have enough nurse scientists, and the ones we have are all operating in a space of nurse education, and that is critical. We desperately need that right now. I am not, in any way, shape, or form, trying to denigrate that. Nurse educators are crucially important. But if you're a nurse educator, and you haven't written a grant ever, and your dissertation was the only research you ever did, why do you get an opinion on this particular topic? Because you're the, quote, steward of the profession, unquote? This is a problem. It's hypocritical, it's illogical, and it does not make sense. I think we need to take a hard look at the logical inconsistencies here. Just as it's illogical to assume that we don't need somebody on the practice end equipped with the tools to ask and answer their own research questions based on the actual applicability in the applied setting, it is equally important to stop pretending as though the vast majority of nurse scientists trained with PhD preparation are doing laboratory-based or kind of fundamental theoretical research with grants every cycle or every year and that they're hardcore, serious researchers, generally speaking, because this is just not borne out by the empirical literature. And if you go into any nursing school in the country, there are a very select few nurse scientists with PhDs who are doing that kind of work. But more importantly than this is of those people who are doing that work, the Cooleys, the Weavers, the Dorseys, the Starkweathers, the Kongs, the Perrys, the you know, the people doing this fantastic work in fundamental nursing science at the basic level, doing efficacy work, 
these individuals to pretend that they could not themselves do knowledge translation as well as generation is absolutely absurd and asinine. It simply elucidates and further sheds light on this fact that we have created and cultivated these false dichotomies, these two discrete categories, which don't exist. These mental categories barely hold together mentally, but they have almost zero relevance for the world outside of our minds. This is a big problem because we've established entire career trajectories based on these false ideas. And it's not as if we are alone. Other professions have done something similar. But they also have had to take hard looks over the years at these types of idealizations. And it's time we do the same. I think this highlights the need for our philosophical and logical underpinnings to be reworked somewhat. There are these kind of bivariate components that I tend to think about in this space fairly frequently. And again, it sort of comes back to this point of the logical inconsistencies that are abound in our conceptualizations of the fundamental elements of our profession. Namely, that our philosophical predisposition should be critical theoretic in nature, which emerged out of the sort of Heideggerian and Cunian sort of philosophical paradigm shift after the sort of 60s era in nursing philosophy. And that theoretic perspective, I hate to break it to you, leaves the room for people like myself to make these claims that you don't like about DNPs. And the way that I can say that is because part of the critical theoretic perspective is deconstructing the hegemony. What's the hegemony in nursing? It's the traditional PhD preparation as leaders and stewards of the field because they are the top. It's the sort of matriarchal element of the nursing profession. Do you see how ridiculous that sounds? This is a problem for us. Or at least it's a problem for those of you who would like to claim that we are both a, a profession steeped in the critical domain, philosophically, but also a profession that needs to adhere to the sort of like prototypical standards of academia, such as they have been in other fields like medicine for hundreds of years. The other thing in this sort of bivariate model in my mind that I think about is the idea that we and I've talked about this in my previous upload, this idea that nurses are methodological experts, but then, and, and again, do not let that seem like I'm denigrating nurses for their expertise in qualitative research. I'm not. I have such a profound respect for qualitative researchers. I can't even begin to tell you how much respect I have. I think it's crucial I think we couldn't have quantitative research without first having good qualitative and subjective analysis to build our constructs and concepts from. I truly believe this. However, when we have these critical needs in research, in nursing, critical needs to find out how to improve certain things for nurses that require really high-level quantitative inquiry and analysis in the field, and people are not properly trained in that. And then there are those of us at the bedside who can do those things, who are told, no, 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 that's not your place. We end up in a predicament where people have eschewed philosophically the verificationist type of... And I, and I understand that there are flaws with the verificationists. I, I know that for a fact. Logical positivism has its flaws, no doubt. And a hypothetical deductive approach to philosophy of science also has its downfalls. But if, if you think that we can't learn anything from the logicians in these domains who have helped to establish empirical scientific inquiry, which has held up other fields like medicine, and that we couldn't benefit from this, 
it seems to me that you're not paying close enough attention to the needs on the ground in nursing. Because we have this critical need to understand nursing practice, to understand nursing workforce, to understand nursing outcomes on patients, to understand the effect of different types of training in nursing on patients and patient populations. If we want to claim to be an evidence-based profession, we need to be an evidence-based profession. But we have to demonstrate these things. If you think that somebody external to our field is going to help solve the workforce shortage crisis that's coming, that's already here, that we are on the precipice of, and that you can do that without high-quality quantitative and randomized experimental data, you're deluding yourself. We are at a critical juncture where it is time to step back and reevaluate our philosophical underpinnings because they have set us up for failure. Think about this. We have a theoretical perspective which has alienated 94% of the profession who are nurses at the bedside who ultimately think that our theoretical presuppositions are silly. We have three or four critical research needs in our profession that are absolutely necessary to study with a randomized quantitative lens. Our profession hinges on these findings. Our profession hinges on what we will do with those findings. And simultaneously, our profession eschews the type of methodology that would be required to answer those questions. Namely, we are told that a logical empiricist randomized clinical trial derivative study design is sort of antithetical to what we view as good enough science in our field. The traditional gold standard is looked down upon in our field, but it's how you answer these types of questions because you can reduce bias, you can control for nuisance variables, and you can be sure that you've determined causality, which you cannot do with another non-randomized design, at least not well and not without extraordinarily large samples, which good luck getting in nursing. There are really, truly fundamental errors that need to be addressed that we have been stumbling downhill for many decades. Anybody who looks objectively at our history, at the science, at our pursuits therein, and the philosophical presuppositions that hold up our field will note that there are common threads that have been useful across those domains. There are people, individuals, who have emerged throughout that historical timeline that have kept things afloat in certain ways. There are professional organizations that have done a fantastic job in upholding the values and the virtues of bedside nursing and advanced practice nursing and of nursing science, but there's also simultaneously so much fluff and so much in need of improving that we perpetuate all of these silly false dichotomies and logical inconsistencies, and then we can't even look at them directly and acknowledge that we have something to fix because it means overturning some silly ideas we had in the 60s and 70s. Those people are not infallible. What's wrong with listening to the 94% of our profession which looks at us in academia and says, are you for real? It's time for us to take a hard look at what we're doing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. If you'd like to donate to support the show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. And if you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, or if I've reviewed a paper you are an author on and you would like to join me for an episode, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.